0: Hey, what's up, nerds? It's October 4th, 2017. And this
1: is episode 13 of Book Nerds.
0: The read-along podcast where we pick a book and read about 150 pages a week, discussing things as we go until we're finished.
1: Then we pick another book and do it all over again. I'm Matt Shabody,
0: And I'm Danielle Bryan. And this week we're discussing pages 172 through 323 of What Happened by Hillary Rodham Clinton. But before that... Hey, Matt, what you reading?
1: I'm reading What Happened. By Hillary Rodham Clinton. <laughs> I suck this week. I, my to be red stack is ever growing and I'm failing as a reader, but I'm up to date for a reading for today. I just finished the most recent page right before we started recording. Oh,
0: you sound So like I'm me. ready to go.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, I was doing my homework on the bus this morning, but we're I'm here. I'm ready. Let's do this. How about you? Have you been getting any extracurricular reading?
0: Yeah because i don't do anything it's because i'm not sleeping it's because i'm stressed <laughs> out not sleeping so i'm reading so i am on the third inspector Gamash book so again thanks hill for recommending um they're good i think after three i'm gonna have to take a break right because then you just start to like get into the repetitive motions of the book and like the tiny reminders which are helpful when you haven't read a book for like a couple months or a year when you read them back to back to back the like on last week's episode gets a little annoying even though this writer's really good at doing little ones, I don't need them right now, so it bugs. Me.
1: Yeah, and more than three, it starts to be a problem. Like you need to, you know, temper your mystery fiction with something, something else.
0: Well, I did also download because I had my Audible credit for the month. And I'm trying to learn how to be read to again. So in honor of October and the media hype around it, I, uh, I downloaded Stephen King's It. So I'm listening to that right now. Oh, so.
1: nice. I it's I will creepy. tell you, I started that right when Henry was born. I figured I'm gonna have a newborn. I'm really not gonna be sleeping anyway. Here's a nice big fat book to keep me up. And I probably got about a I don't know, an eighth of the way through it, which is actually pretty substantial in that yeah, you know, fourteen hundred page book or whatever it is. Um, and then just, you know, got distracted. But I really want to get back to it. So It maybe... is a
0: forty four hour audible. Oh read. god. <laughs> I know, I'm like, oh. all right, it's the, mo- I you know, maybe I'll finish it by Thanksgiving.
1: It's so good, though. I mean, I, I really enjoyed what I got into it. And it just reminded me why Stephen King is Stephen King.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't seen the movie in the theater. I do remember seeing the miniseries when it came out. And like we had cousins in town. So like the first half of the miniseries, our funny cousins were in town. And we were like, ha ha ha, like killing a clown with like an earring or just like something. We were like making fun of it. And then the concluding week, my cousins weren't in town and it was much more frightening. Gotta
1: have those funny cousins around.
0: Well, that's it. It's just like, you're so brave or I am when there's like company. And then when I'm by myself, I'm like, (gasps) (laughs) that clown is creepy. (laughs) You know, so, uh yeah. So those are the things. I need something um, light and bright to balance (laughs) the election. It's Spectre Gamache and it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I guess on the topic of what happened and needing something light and bright, um, we should probably get into it. So we're a little behind the curtain for all of you guys. We generally record a day or two before we post. So we are recording this on Monday, October 2nd, and Mm -hmm. we are reeling from the news of Las Vegas.
0: Yeah, so that's what we woke up to this morning. So I believe the current count of people who have died is at 58. It was at 40 when I woke up. My husband and I were talking about like, sometimes you hear a number and you're just like, oh, 58, like that's not a giant number. But when you think of like just one actual person, you know, dying and then think these are 58 lives and then the ripple effect of that life because they all have families and friends and it's not just a number.
1: Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds, and I'm sure we'll have a lot more than just the hot takes on this by the time this actually posts on Wednesday. But my hope is that this is a unique event in that while it happened in a distinct location, the nature of it, and that the victims were probably from across the U.S., this will be hopefully more far-reaching than previous gun violence disasters that might actually lead to a productive conversation.
0: I hope you're right. I'm a little jaded because I think if Sandy Hook didn't do it, if mowing down first graders didn't push gun control and action to the forefront of the national agenda, I don't know what will.
1: Yeah, I don't know either. And I mean, I guess you hope that by the fact that this is going to touch close to home in more localities, that it's not an abstract idea of people somewhere else might make it a more urgent and pressing. But it is, I mean, it's really unfortunate that we have to have this discussion, but not surprising as this seems to happen, oh, fairly regularly. I think The Onion hit the nail on the head this morning with their brief satirical article. The headline was, No way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. (laughs) Yeah, and the article that follows is uh, pretty on the point. Quote, this was a terrible tragedy, but sometimes these things just happen and there's nothing anyone can do to stop them, said Iowa resident Kyle Rimmels, echoing sentiments expressed by tens of millions of individuals who reside in a nation where over half of the world's deadliest mass shootings have occurred in the past 50 years and whose citizens are 20 times more likely to die of gun violence than those of other developed nations. Quote, it's a shame, but what can we do?
0: Even Hillary talks about it. This is maddening to me. So she talks about it in um, that whole section on turning mourning into a movement. So before this morning, I was actually, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Black Lives Matter and the mothers of the movement, which I still think is incredibly important. And I'm so happy that she was supportive of that and let those women come in and share their voices because we do have an issue in this country of gun violence towards people of color. But instead I think I, I want to focus a little bit more on this, on some of the statistics and things she gave and her gun policy. So in this book, she is quoting that um, now I can't find the page, but it's 90 people a day die in the United States of America because of gun violence. Now that's not broken apart by the type of gun violence. So whether that is um, a domestic abuser, you know, or suicide his wife, or that, yes, any, you know, a, a police officer shooting an unarmed black man, like all of these things are encompassed in that number. And that number is insane because if that many people were dying every day of, you know, I don't know, let's just give it something leg cramps, right? Like <laughs> we would be putting all of our effort into like giving everybody bananas and like, you guys, this potassium will save you. Let's come together as a country and there'd be like this banana movement and and people would be saved. But instead, and I know that was a ridiculous example, but on purpose. So instead we're in this current ridiculous situation. So I just wanna, you know, again, like let's go back to the book. So I'm on page 182 when she's talking about Wayne LaPierre, um, the NRA chief. So she's saying, He helped make the NRA one of the most reactionary and dangerous organizations in America. Instead of being concerned with the interests of everyday gun owners, many of whom support common sense safety protections, the NRA has essentially become a wholly owned subsidiary of the powerful corporations that make and sell guns. Their bottom line and twisted ideology are all that matters to them, even if it costs thousands of American lives every year. First, that point of like, the NRA did not start out as the organization that it is now.
1: No, no, it did not. And I mean, you look at that number, 90 people die every day and we are in mourning and in shock because as of right now, 58 people died last night. If there was a mass shooting where 90 people died every single day, we would be, we would be fixing it. Like you said, anything, if there was anything where all of a sudden 90 people were dropping dead every day, we would fix it. And I want to come out and say, I support gun ownership. I support the Second Amendment. I also support common sense gun laws. And I don't understand why we have this conversation where the two can't coexist.
0: Well, Hillary would agree with you. So if so, she was being touted, right, as like the person who's going to come and take away your guns. But again, if we look to her actual policy and what she said in her speeches, so on page 187, she says, I'm not here to repeal the Second Amendment. I'm not here to take away your guns. I just don't want you to be shot by someone who shouldn't have a gun in the first place. And I think even taking that a step further, not just someone who shouldn't have a gun, but putting military-grade rifles into the hands of your normal American citizen. So if we look at uh, last night's shooting, the man's brother, who's like, he wasn't even a gun guy. Like, he's not a military guy. He had 10 high-powered rifles. Like, where the hell do he even get these guns? And then you think, like, oh, okay— in Nevada, you can get them anywhere. Like so, not only the background of who should or should not be allowed to handle a gun, but policy concerning what types of guns the average citizen should have. There is no reason that the average person should have a weapon designed to mow people down. I'm gonna go on the record with that one. <laughs>
1: I'm I'm inclined to agree with you. Um, I have a like I'm a weird political creature in that. I believe in people's freedoms and liberties. And I, you know, honestly, up until this morning, I would have said, I think proper background checks. I think, you know, people can own what they want and should as long as they use it in a responsible manner. But even, and it'll be interesting to see as this case unfolds, but it sounds like this guy might have been the type of person that would not have come up in background checks and would not have had any of those red flags. and. If we can't prevent that and we as a culture are getting to a place where this happens so regularly, I think it might be time to have that conversation about who can own what.
0: I'm super curious then that that is your stance because I would like to know, again, because I respect your opinion, what, uh, because like I have say cousins who have. You know, I don't even know. I'm going to say the wrong gun because, but like, say like an AR-15, that's maybe a thing someone would have and take out into the desert and it's super fun and they like shoot stuff off. Like, why is it okay they have that, but then say they can't have, I don't know, plutonium or like, there are so many, why is it okay that that's a toy? Why is their, their fun, what they consider fun, worth this potential fallout?
1: And I don't think it's necessarily a fun thing. Um, my stance on it is, I guess it comes down to the part of being able to protect oneself. I don't think people like those weapons are designed to use against people,
0: or Many then you're not going to hunt.
1: You're not going to hunt with those weapons. I mean, you can, but they're not the best tool for the job. Thinking about okay, if there was a scenario where you needed to defend yourself and your family, that and other, let's say, other people or government had those weapons and you didn't, that is a disadvantage.
0: But we live in and America. Like, who do you think is going to come where you need an AR-15? Like, a semi-automatic weapon.
1: And I will I will fully admit that it goes down to, like, a very, like, verging on prepper territory, like, um, paranoid mind state. But I guess I just fundamentally believe in... The freedom to own those to own those weapons that are within, in my opinion, a reasonably like plutonium. You're not using that to defend yourself. You're using it to nuke. I don't know the world, but I I,
0: that wasn't a good example. I wish there was like an in between, like you know, like a gun and something that was. Maybe I'll come up with a better example next week because that was a bit extreme, right? Like I'm not saying there's it's the same thing as having a nuclear weapon as owning a semi-automatic rifle. But I am I am intrigued by that because honestly, I have to say, I feel like I can't see any reason why any just normal American would need something. And I'm not talking about, like I personally wouldn't have, you know, a, a handgun in my nightstand to defend my home or my family. But, but I get that some people would have that and feel safer with that fine but when would you ever you know pull your semi-automatic rifle out from underneath your bed and like again it's they're high capacity magazines designed to take out a lot of people at one time if the government was ever coming for someone like they're not going to show up at your door and knock like they're going to drone your house
1: yeah and i guess it's not necessarily even the government I mean, so let's go down the dark, scary path of recent thinking, but with North Korea talking about an EMP attack. So let's go to a place where the North American grid goes down and we don't have electricity. We don't have access to resources. And how long do you think it takes in this current climate for civility to break down?
0: Uh, I mean, I I get what you're saying, but that is not, I don't think that that is the viable resource for thinking people. I can't like, because if then we're going back to a point of like, who has the biggest gun, then we'll win. I don't know, maybe I'm being naive, but I think that that's such a bleak outlook on like, let's instead try to uh, elect more common sense officials um, or, I think the extreme outcomes in these situations, and maybe this can kind of lead back into uh, a point I want to make about the book, like the big sexy change or the big, like let's get bigger lockers or um, to take this into the realm of maybe the silly, but like, I, you know, I need this gun to defend my family against the zombie apocalypse. So we're not like stepping on anyone's politics there, but th- those are big, extreme, flashy, right it's either a big fix or a big reaction to a big problem or i think maybe something that hillary suffered from and she talks about it and i'm going to go back to the book again um how does like uh she calls herself a progressive pragmatist i think so how does someone who's like okay i see a big problem but i'm going to attack this in baby steps and we're going to get to where you're going but it might be boring in the meantime like we might just have to buckle down and do some hard work and incrementally turn the ship around when what's exciting right now and i think what gets news coverage especially in like our twitter society is the really short little breakdown so if we go on i mean again right nerd i mark stuff in the book and now i'm going to call it pages so she's talking about her work with the children's defense fund and she's saying this kind of work isn't glamorous but my experience with cdf convinced me that this is how you make real change in america step-by-step, year-by-year, sometimes even door-by-door. You need to stir up public opinion and put pressure on political leaders. You have to shift policies and resources, and you need to win elections. You need to change hearts and change laws. What do you think about that?
1: I think, I mean, to that point, and to go back to the conversation, is that I, despite my stance, and like I said, and I'm mulling it over today of like, okay, maybe... We do need to change this, but the baby steps of gun policy are let's at least start with background checks. Let's at least start with making sure that if you're on the no if you're on the no fly list, you can't buy a gun. And I'm sorry if you got put on the no fly list by mistake, they'll sort that out. You probably don't need that gun right away. Yeah, like, right. Those things, like those baby steps are okay, let's make some progress. Like we don't need to go right away and say, you know what? We have to outlaw all guns. Let's take them all away. If you own one, you need to ship it into the government. Like, we're going back to knives and sticks. Like, that's not what we're saying. But that will be the debate, I guarantee you, over the next, you know, month, as, as it always is after gun violence, where it, both extremes push the conversation in the media and actual sensible steps that can be taken get ignored.
0: I think the media is part of that problem. They choose what to cover. Like I buy where she starts, you know, ragging on the New York Times, which we all like. I still read it. So does she. But their coverage in here, because, you know, that's one of the most like hallowed journalistic institutions in America. And yet it's falling prey to the same clickbait bullshit that everyone, you know, is kind of falling trap to.
1: I would love to sit in on a contemporary journalism class, because how is a headline that basically doesn't tell you the whole story An actual headline. Like when I was in journalism, a headline had to get across what happened and why you should read this, not leave you hanging with a question to click the story.
0: No, you get taught that if you don't answer the basic who, what, where between your headline and the first paragraph of the story, like the rest is supposed to be supporting detail. But that main point, it's not a thesis paper or a cliffhanger. You're not like building up the suspense and then pouncing. It's information like facts don't have to be sexy. If you're BuzzFeed
1: or something like that, I expect it. But more and more, I see it trickling into what has been traditionally mainstream media.
0: So I think that it's interesting when Hillary talks about how Bernie kind of capitalized on this. And again, you know, it was the arena that he was playing in. But um, even when she's talking about, again, like kind of right, what's kind of sexy and what isn't. So we're talking about Bernie. We're on page 226. He didn't seem to mind if his math didn't add up or if his plans had no prayer of passing Congress and becoming law. For Bernie, policy was about inspiring a mass movement and forcing a conversation about the Democratic Party's values and priorities. By that standard, I would say he succeeded, but it worried me. I've always believed that it's dangerous to make big promises if you have no idea how you're going to keep them. When you don't deliver, it will make people even more cynical about government. It's so weird having her look back over the book and be like, man, I could have done this. Like when she talks about that Alaska for America policy, like we couldn't make the math work, but should I have put it out there? Because it was like, you know, a grandiose idea with no plan that people could get behind. Like what if that would have made her win? I was just like, what if that would have been the thing that pushed her over the top? But then at the same time, you know, she wouldn't be true to actually herself and how she would govern.
1: So two things on that. Um, two big topics actually that I want to talk about. But the first one kind of tying into that is I think on page 272, she said when she was talking about you know her time in coal country, that for too many, this was primarily a resentment election. And so you had people on the right that were just resenting the status quo and Obama and all of that and wanted to change and just were angry that they were losing jobs, that the economy you know in their eyes wasn't doing great. And I honestly think to some extent on the left, you had resentment from people that signed up for hope and change and didn't see change because democracy doesn't move in leaps and bounds. It moves in baby steps. So for them, what was appealing were the big, grandiose claims of a Bernie Sanders that, you know, this is true change. These are big, radical steps. And I think you know, what happened is Hillary being true to herself and her conscience couldn't come out and say that. But unfortunately, the pragmatism of day-to-day governance isn't sexy. And so I wonder if there could have been a world where she could come forward with, here's what I want to do. Like, here's my vision and putting out these big, like where she would like to end up and get people excited. And then, but the prag, you know, the here's how we we'll start. Is, yeah. We're gonna get there, but like I want to show you that the end goal, because that's what gets people excited. And I wonder if too much of her conversation was too pragmatic to get people excited. And unfortunately, like it sucks that that's what I in fault American Bernie politics for that. you need.
0: I think that there's something to be said where they're both talking about like raising the minimum wage. And he's like, just, you know, let it be $15. And she's like, hey, great. I want to get there, too. But if you look at this plan, first, we're going to go to 12 to kind of like ease the companies into it. And then we're going to go to 15. So, yeah, let's both get to that place. But this is the way that it will actually happen. And then he'd be like, ah, she doesn't want to do it. Like that was infuriating to me to watch like during their, you know, their primary debates and then when he didn't immediately endorse her it took him a month to come out in favor of her and he still wasn't favorably behind her i think that that's you know if we're all gonna like bear this burden of trump i think bernie gets some of that on his shoulders too because what could he have done if he rallied behind her the way that she you know took her knocks and immediately rallied her people behind obama in 08 it goes back to me of that whole thing like we blame the republicans for like Oh, you know, people don't want to play your game. Then you're going to take your toys and go home. Poor loser. And then we did it. We did it in our own party.
1: I would be curious. I'd love to see a chronological breakdown because like chicken or the egg, right? Like did, did Bernie Sanders come out and say $15 an hour, set that line. And then Hillary's like, yeah, I want to get there. But here's how you actually do it. Or did she start? And then he was like, no, 15, like upping the ante. In my recollection, you know, it was sort of him starting this conversation. And then her being like, yeah, here's how you actually do it. So it wasn't so much that he was always one upping her, but the difference between the bold, sweeping vision and the pragmatic, how you actually get there.
0: No doubt he pushed her left, which I actually appreciated that. Like, I don't see that as a negative. When she was able to see the amount of like momentum that he could get behind him with these big ideas, and then it pushed her even more, you know, left than she is, again, like my goal would be to get in smart, you know, capable political leaders and then rather than blow up the system, push them to keep making that system the best that it can be, which I know is not on, you know, is very different I think and I don't think that you are the average, you know, Bernie bro like we talked about before, but I think that there's a different view between my okay, let's get into the system and change it from the inside. And the, well, let's blow up the system and just do this.
1: And I think that's, you know, that's where it gets to this idea that it was a resentment election. Like, I think, and I don't think there's been a lot said about resentment on the left and people's frustrations that it, you know, wasn't radical or progressive enough and that that, what negative impacts that had on the election as well.
0: I'm sure they felt fallout from Obama who went in on hope and change. And don't get me wrong, he passed some of the, biggest uh, legislation in our history, even by getting, you know, the Affordable Care Act through, which granted, I'm one of the people that thinks it didn't go far enough, but the reality is when you get this job, because we don't live, you know, in some crazy oligarchy, even though our current president would probably (laughs) enjoy that, you are, a president can only accomplish as much as Congress will work together to allow. Like you still, you know, You can promise because it would have happened to Bernie, too. You can promise as many things as you want. But then you get in that seat and Congress has to work with you. And Congress did not work with President Obama. They blocked him at every turn. And sadly, I do think that's probably would have happened at least in the first half of the first term of a Hillary Clinton presidency.
1: For sure. And one other thing I wanted to talk about as well is so many times in this week's reading, There were these moments where Hillary's like, well, my initial instinct was to do blank, but I held my tongue and was reserved like so many times. She's like, you know, whether it was at the debates or, you know, um, in reaction to her email scandal or in reaction to their misquoting of her talking about coal country. And I guess my question is, like, is it a damned if you do damned if you don't situation? Because you know, so many times her instinct was to like take an aggressive stand, speak up be like this is ridiculous. And she didn't. And she was just quiet and with, you know, kept quiet about it. And in hindsight, maybe that wasn't the best thing to do. But I'm curious to get your take on it.
0: I don't think that America likes an angry, loud woman. I don't know how she would have done it. I don't think that there is a way people are. It's too, you know, she even talked about in her book, like if If Obama wells up at something because it's emotional or if Bill like teared up a little bit, people would be like, oh, the president has a heart. But then like the minute she tears up at something, they're just like hysterical woman let's emotions get ahead of her. Like, I don't I don't think there was a way that she could have handled it that would have been accepted. I hope in the future there is a way that women can just be people and speak facts and stand up for themselves. And speak loudly and with authority without that being, you know, shrill and off the rails. But I don't think we're there yet.
1: Just thinking back to that presidential debate where Trump was looming behind her the whole time and Ugh. thinking about like it's tough because you do want to turn around and go back off. You wouldn't do this if I was a man. You wouldn't. You just wouldn't. I know you like to intimidate women, but you can't intimidate me. Step off. You fucking creepster. And you know what the headlines would be if she did that. Like, oh, she's unstable, she's emotional, like, but it it would be totally within her right to say that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can just see it. You're right. It would be like, Hillary's scared of Trump. How will she defend America? Ugh. Yeah, it's too easy right. to see the way that it could have gone.
1: Yeah, it just sucks because so many times in this book you see her biting her tongue where instinctually she would have reacted exactly the way any of us would have. And Honestly, should have, but is in this double bind by the nature of being a woman in the public eye.
0: I think it's so interesting to the spin on everything, like because I feel like even you know all of the topics that we have covered so far on today's podcast, there's still we keep adding in the element of like spin and media and how it's covered. And I think it's so interesting when she's talking about coal and how that. Like, first, not only how, like, how is it legal that you can just completely misrepresent what someone says? I can't.
1: Yeah, you can take a quote absolutely out of context and twist their words and make, yeah, and put money behind it on the airwaves, many of which are public.
0: Yeah. and be like, this is real. This is what happened. Okay. No, it's not. But even the story about coal. So it's tragic what happened with, right, like coal miners and getting black lung and then losing their pensions and losing their jobs. I'm not saying that that's not horrible for those people, but when you put it in context, way more people have lost their retail jobs because of say like the Amazon boom than people who have lost their jobs because of a step away from coal. Right. But that doesn't have the, that heartstring attached to it, but it's less than 5% of people. It would, I don't know if it was Virginia or West Virginia that was quoted in this book, have jobs in coal country. Like more of them work in medicine, like in arenas where, you know, the Affordable Care Act and expanded Medicaid coverage, <laughs> like the, these actually all make a difference. Them. Yes. But instead, we're talking about the death of an industry that is dying anyway. And she wanted to help those people. And then they take it out of context and make them hate her. I don't I can't wrap my head around the gymnastics. That's the part
1: that just boggled my mind. And honestly, it's something that I hadn't thought about until this, but that, you know, if you just watch the news and and even do a little bit more than watching the nightly news, I had that perception that that was a large part of economies in these areas. And in my perspective was like, yeah, something needs to be done with it because It's going away like it just is like that's a fact of life. We need to transition to a new type of economy and new energies. And how do we find jobs for these people when in reality, we need to be worrying about the people that are getting cut out by retail and what's soon to be automation. Like this idea that coal and these sort of historical jobs are the things that we need to preserve. Not only is it a fiction that we can do it, it's a fiction that we need to do it.
0: I like when she talked about Democrats being the party of the future, like the Republicans will be like, again, like make America great again. But this idea that no, it's not coming back. So let's take a minute and be sad and acknowledge your feelings. But in order to progress as a society and for you, coal miner and your family, like, let's find your next step. Let's don't, wallow in this thing? Because even if we brought it back, it's still a finite resource and someone eventually is not going to have a job. So let's find those jobs of the future.
1: And how unfair is it to come in and say, hey, everyone, I'm going to take care of you. We're bringing coal back. Carriers keeping jobs here. And none of this is happening. Like It's not going to happen. The people that are clinging to this idea that they're going to get their coal mines reopened And it seems like from interviews I've seen on the ground, most of those people don't actually believe it's going to happen. They know that the future is somewhat inevitable and need to adapt, and they're looking for ways to do that. And the thing that just got to me in this week's reading was all of the personal stories. It gets so easy to fall into the headlines and get abstracted into these ideas and have them become intellectual exercises but whether it's the mothers of the movement telling their very personal stories about, you know, how racial violence has impacted them, to Bo the coal miner, talking about, I've got these three kids and I have to go home to them and say, I don't have a job. I need to figure out how to put food on the table for you. Like ugh, these very real human people, I just keep going back to the fact that I think good old grandma Hillary would take much better care of our country than our current president.
0: Well, she saw the people as people. I think that's that's it right there. Like, these weren't sound bites to her. And no one will convince me otherwise. I think that she sees people as human beings that she could actually help.
1: Well, it and goes st- back to that. I mean, that her Methodist mandate of do the most good for the most people for as long as you can. Like, I want, I feel like, and I'm not religious, but I feel like that should be somehow incorporated into our government.
0: Yeah, I like, I totally agree with you. And I think kind of hearkening back to last week, that would be one of the things that I would say is like, I guess not necessarily, no, I think it would be surprising to me and something that has started to shift my view in this book because I know right now that i have a bias against like the capital c damn the gays to hell christian movement right and i forget again that those headlines and those people that are out there speaking the loudest don't necessarily represent every christian in america so then we have this woman that i respect so much who really does come from a place of wanting to help people and for her that is so tied up with her faith in god so while that doesn't right like make me believe in god That does give me respect for the position that she's coming from so that when she does invoke God in a conversation, I feel like it comes from a place of truth and not from a place of campaigning.
1: Agreed. And this brings me back full circle because I want to talk about, did you listen to our president's speech this morning on the events in Las Vegas?
0: No, I read them.
1: I read the recap
0: in a New York Times article. No, I did not listen to that man speak.
1: I listened to it live on my commute this morning. and And I know it's a time of mourning and a time of grief and everyone needs to mourn in their own way. But the general sense I got from it was, I mean, I'd like to count the number of times God was invoked and it was decried as an act of pure evil, almost in the sense that, These things are out of our control and it is a, you know, this is just evil. There's evil in the world and we rely on God to defend it. And it felt very much a, these are forces bigger than our abilities to even deal with. And we're relegating it to the higher powers and may God comfort the victims. And it just infuriated me that the person who has the power to effect change and you know there were promises made to the victims that we will be there for you and we'll support you well what does that mean like are you gonna go down and you know comfort them are you gonna provide for their children and their families like what does that even mean
0: versus- it means god is pulling his hair out somewhere saying hey asshole how about some regulation like stop yeah. talking to me and do something about this
1: i guess in a way like just to bring it back to the conversation, but this idea that I love it when I see the capital G God working through people and people taking that as, you know what, that means it's my job to do something versus, well, it's out of my hands.
0: Yeah, I'll just pray. Yep. Um, Let's end on something uh, a little lighter that we can both agree on, I think. like uh, Let's end on some fuck you, Comey, email much nothing can we like i like when she was talking about um again nerds and facts i love her so much so going back to like so i'm on like 223 i think so she's talking about how much time was spent on um so all in all like only 10 percent of campaign news covered policy right so that first that's insane so 10 percent on the shit that will actually affect your lives when this is over and 90% on hype and bullshit. And then within the hype and bullshit. um, So she's talking about the decline on policy reporting. The decline of serious reporting on policy has been going on for a while, but it got much worse in 2016. In 2008, the major networks nightly newscast spent a total of 220 minutes on policy in 2012. It was 114 minutes in 2016. It was just 32 minutes. By contrast, 100 minutes were spent covering my emails. In other words, the political press was telling voters that my emails were three times more important than all of the other issues combined. What? Blah! In the actual fuck, and nothing happened. I love when she talks about, like, it's the change from, you know, a pen and paper telephone society to an internet society, and she was in the middle.
1: Her first term as a U.S. senator, she didn't send a single email?
0: She never sent one as first lady. And it's not because she's an idiot. It's because that wasn't the process.
1: Sidebar, we're going to stop this podcast and start a new venture called the Hype and Bullshit News Network because (laughs) that would be amazing.
0: I think so, too. And, you know, people would listen. And yeah, it would just be all hype and bullshit, like all the stuff that doesn't matter. We could just take all of our headlines from Fox and I guess, you know, honestly, from The New York Times. Like, this made me crazy. What do we do as citizens? You know, I guess part of the thing that we can do is stop clicking on those stories and stop. I
1: mean, that's the best thing we can do. Falling for it. Don't feed into it. But it's hard when you want to be engaged and you want to be a knowledgeable citizen. But maybe there's a policy of if it's clickbait, like just wait until you can get the real facts. I don't know.
0: Wait, Wait, wait. Don't just repost it. I I think everyone's guilty of this. Like, not only do I see people who, again, you know, on the left that I would agree with reposting articles that someone later in the thread will be like, hey, Snopes did an article on this and it's not true. They will post shit that is super old because no one checks the date on the articles. And like someone reposted this morning about how like, you know, Donald Trump Jr. And it looks like he will go to jail for what he said about Russia. And I was like, holy shit. And then I looked at the date and I was like, this is from July. Like, nothing's happened. Why is someone, but it just is making the rounds again. So much like her email, right? It's like much ado about nothing.
1: Yeah, I want to start a conversation that I don't even know where it goes. But I wonder if fundamentally, has the internet improved our lives and our ability to have informed discourse or not.
0: Yeah, I'm, I bet I fall in the or not. And not because I'm afraid of it and I want to go back to like, you know, quills and parchment paper, but there's no, we need eye contact and body language.
1: Well, and I mean, I, you go back to, this is bigger than the scope. We're not going to wrap this up in this podcast, but it's just something I've been thinking about is, pace of life. like I fundamentally draw a line in my life between when I had a flip phone and when I got a smartphone. And I don't know if that's because of where I was in my career where suddenly I had more responsibility or if it was just the fundamental switch from being engaged was a thing that existed between these set hours and then it suddenly being an always on type of thing. But I fundamentally draw a line in quality of life between those two moments.
0: Well, you had to get on the computer then. So even if you had like, you know, your MySpace account, like it wasn't on your phone and we didn't have the notices on our telephones. Nope. I would agree. I think that, uh, you know, and you still had to make that decision. How about to super date myself? Um, you know, when I was in college and I first started like in my dorm, and we had dial up and if too many people in the dorm, you had to like wait in line while your computer like redial. And then you'd hear like the that you got connected. and You'd be like, oh, God, I think that's me. And you'd run back to your room and like check your fucking Hotmail account or whatever. Like it was an endeavor, right? Like the only times I ever wished I was a smoker is when I was somewhere and someone else was late and I was feeling uncomfortable <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. And I was like, oh, this is when people smoke. And now it's just when people get on their phones. But now they never turn the phones back off. It's all led into I think that it is tied to our politics and our devaluation, I think, of human life.
1: yeah, and what what matters and what we devote our time to. But to to get us back from the tangent, I think, yeah, it was ridiculous. And for anyone who was like, genuinely thinks there was some nefarious plot behind Hillary's email server, I hope that this chapter, through other people's words and other people's evidence does a pretty good job of systematically making the case that it was someone who is not a digital native, transitioning, and I've worked at companies way smaller than the US government, and there's always someone whose job it is to make sure you're using the right equipment and that your email's set up accordingly, that if what she was doing was egregiously wrong, someone would have pointed it out. Like it's right there. Yeah, it the wasn't a secret. email address like, <laughs> like at Clinton email. Like It's not like she was masking it under a dot gov name or something.
0: No, everybody knew. I love so much when she's quoting. Again, I think she's funny. Like she's quoting all those people, Uh, you know, from Obama to like FBI heads and stuff. And then at the end, it's like, but her emails, the Internet, <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> the Internet,
0: hilarity, hilarity abounds. Matt, I will say this was a very interesting podcast for me. And I think that um, it just goes to show how heated and divided things are in our country, because even you and I kind of, you know, coming to loggerheads on the gun issue and we love and respect each other. Like, yeah, and
1: our would probably say that like 98 percent of our opinions line up in a lot of ways. But so even within that, like fine nuance of political leftness, like. There are discrepancies. And what I do like about it is that we can just talk about it and have like, hey, I respect your opinion. Here's where I come from. But let's hash it out.
0: Yeah. And I think that there is just such a tendency right now, even between people who agree 98% to just focus on that 2% and to walk away from this and being like, yeah, on gun control, Matt and I, we don't agree, right? Where we do agree and we all want people to live and we're coming at it from different angles. So let's work through it and find a way forward that has like, right, the greater good. Yeah, I'm part.
1: just that much more concerned about the zombie apocalypse than you are. It's okay. I
0: know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. I'll be coming to your house when it yeah,
1: happens. Well maybe um, I'll be coming to your house. You're gonna have all the canned preserves and food, so
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got jam for days, people. <laughs> um all right. Let's call it. I'm yeah, exhausted. Let's, let's...
1: Seriously, it's it's been a day.
0: I like talking about these things, though. I mean, we did get our first, like, kind of heckler on Facebook today who saw <laughs> what book we were doing, and his only comment was Pass. But um, I'm happy That's cool. You're welcome. to do this. Yeah, like, I'm happy to have these harder conversations. Uh, I wish Mr. Pass would read it and see, you know, actually contribute to the conversation instead of just judging it.
1: Yeah. Well, welcome to the Internet in 2017.
0: There you go. Um, all right, one more week of Hillary. One more week uh, on
1: this book, and then I promise we will find we we will find something that's like puppies and rainbows, or I mean, man, we've had some heavy books this past run, but uh, we will we will get back to something. I don't know something different,
0: just to mix it up. Because I loved these books, like I know you did. But yeah, it's time to, we said everything from high literature to hot trash. So we are due for some hot trash, I think.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Um, So we've got one more week on this. Let's finish out What Happened by Hillary Rodham Clinton. So I believe that's pages what?
0: 3.25 through the end.
1: Yeah, so 3.25 through the end. And we'll be back next week to wrap it up.
0: Yeah, maybe this time she'll win, right? It's like when you watch the Titanic and you're like, maybe the boat won't sink. So fingers crossed for that fictitious ending. I actually ended the book myself on page 248. So she just takes the stage at the Democratic National Convention to receive the nomination officially. And she's talking about her mother who had passed away. And she says, and of course, I wish she could see her daughter become the Democratic Party's nominee for the president of the United States. And in my book, I just wrote the end. The end. (laughs) Nothing happens from here. Nope. And then she went on to live happily ever after.
1: Ah, oh, I
0: wish. All right. Until next time, everybody. Uh, give us a follow, share, a rate, and review. But finish up your books. Yeah. Until next time. Happy reading, guys. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Ooh, hey, that was that was uh that was intense. That was yeah.